It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 239 for April 24th, 2011. Hey, I got the year right again. Recorded April 22nd. This is a segment I've given the title, Alien Skin, Eye Candy 6, Fun. And I could probably stop right there. If you're already familiar with Alien Skin, you know about Eye Candy. You know that a new version has been in the works for a while. You know just how seriously this company takes amusement. But bear with me for a moment, and let's look at some of the latest from this North Carolina company. And I encourage you to visit the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com, so you can see the images that I worked with. Alien Skin Software makes Photoshop plugins for photographers and graphic designers. In their own words, they, and I quote, distill advanced math and cutting-edge research into simple tools that render beautiful pictures. I couldn't have said that any better. iCandy includes 30 filters with more than 1,000 presets and hundreds of controls. Complex and hard to use? You'd expect that, but... No, this is Alien Skin, after all. The company that hides all of the power behind a surprisingly simple-to-use user interface. Presets are organized into categories, and each adapts to fit the size of the current image. If you want to explore beyond the presets, easy. And after customizing an effect, you can save your own for reuse. If you check the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll find a picture of a couple of cats... One is called Percy, he's the orange one, and then there's Chloe, the multicolored cat. That image is my starting point for the eye candy tests. And note, eye candy does two discrete functions, one that deals with text and selected areas, and the other that deals with entire images. For the purposes of this review, I'm ignoring the entire images concept Entirely, We're looking only at what you can do with text and selected areas. So I called iCandy into action with a patriotic backlit filter. I didn't think it did much for that particular image, but we've only just begun. The second option, I like this one. It's a standard bevel effect, but with a stone effect on the text. Let's see what else we can find, though. The next effect I looked at is chrome. Chrome is pretty cool, and Alien Skin gives you a nice variety of interior and exterior scenes that are reflected in the chrome. But, as much as I like that, I thought I'd keep trying. The next effect I wandered across was psychedelic. It's a corona effect. Now, by itself, this really doesn't work with that image, but it might work in combination with other effects, and it would certainly work with some images. Next effect was spray paint. No, not really for this image. Then I tried an extrusion effect. Also very cool. Not quite what this image needs, though. In fact, maybe that's my point here. The effect has to fit the picture. So you keep working with the images until you find something that looks good with the image. And once you get there, you can tinker with it, refine it, change it. And eventually you'll come up with something you really like and that really works with the image. Next choice, flames. 
Okay, that's nice. I'm not going to call it cool, because it's hot, but it's nice. But not for this image, because cats usually don't like fire. How about glass? I love the glass effect. This is just one of several preset effects, or hundreds of options, that you can create on your own. Well, then I tried a gradient glow. That could remind you of the corona effect, and it's definitely not for this image. How about some icicles on the text? <laughs> okay, they're cool cats, but they're not that cool. Or maybe we could put the text in motion. Ah, here we go. A perspective drop shadow. The text I used is three decks tall. It means there are three lines. So the shadow shouldn't be the same for each line, and it isn't. At the bottom, you'd expect a hard shadow. The second and third decks are further above the surface, so to speak. So the shadows should be different and softer. And indeed, they are. Well, I've got a copper-colored cat. Maybe we could make the text rusty. Hmm. Or maybe the words could be smoldering and about to catch on fire. Or we could have snow falling. Ah, oh, wait, it's April. Forget that. So what was my final image? Well, I combined the bevel effect with the stone text with a little fire and some smoke. It's up to the user to decide which eye candy effects to use in what combination and with which stacking order, and with what opacity settings for each layer. Yes, you get an enormous choice of selections. And that's just one small example with one image of eye candy's text and selection options. You'll find an equal number of options under textures. These are the ones that, instead of affecting selections or text, apply to the full image. I'll tell you about those in a few weeks iCandy supports 16-bit per channel images and CMYK mode. Both of these features are important for professional users. The application also recognizes and takes advantage of multi-core CPUs. Even so, some of those filters are so complex and do so much math, the processing is not immediate. That's to be expected when you're applying an effect to a gigantic raw image, and iCandy 6 does support the 64-bit version of Photoshop, which helps. The bottom line, as usual, Alien Skin has a winner here. Five cats, what else? Digital image manipulation is complicated. It involves some really complex math functions. Alien Skin takes care of all that for you, and all you need to do is deal with an interface that allows you to specify how much of which effect you want to apply. After that, iCandy does all the heavy lifting. For more information, check out the Alien Skin website. You'll find a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. In the ongoing battle against spam, I've made some changes again. Some Internet service providers and many site hosting services, such as Bluehost, give you the option of running Google's post-any-anti-spam service. It may be free or it may cost you a few dollars per year per account. Either way, I've decided, after trying it for a while, it's not a good value. If you have a high-speed connection, it really just makes sense to download all the crap and then call the spam on your own computer. That, in fact, is the exact opposite of the process that I've used for a long time. PostAny seemed like a good choice because it's trainable and it allows for both blacklists and whitelists. Unfortunately, that turned out to be my primary complaint about how PostAny works. First, you can whitelist an address, 
but Postini may still hold a message from any whitelisted address and claim that it's spam. Why? I sent myself a copy of the weekly TechBiter bulletin just to confirm that it went out on time. At about half the time, the bulletin ended up being classified as spam by Postini, and it's from an address I whitelisted. Second, you can blacklist an address, but Postini doesn't delete messages from that address. Instead, it places them in the held area. Even though I know I never, ever want to read a message from freebizmag.com, I still had to manually delete every message they sent. Why? I blacklisted the address. When I enabled Postini, I disabled Spam Assassin. Spam Assassin is an old application. It uses vigilante blacklists along with some user-definable blacklists and whitelists. It also has a long list of rules by which it ranks messages. Any message with a rating higher than a number the user selects is considered spam, and optionally, Spam Assassin will rewrite the subject line with whatever term the user chooses. So I re-enabled Spam Assassin, set it to consider any message with a rating higher than 5 to be spam. And that's a fairly aggressive setting. Combined with my whitelist and blacklist, I found this to be a workable setting. No matter how low a message's score, it'll be marked spam if the address is on my blacklist. And no matter how high a message's score, it will not be marked as spam if the address is on my whitelist. That's the way it's supposed to work. And why Postini didn't work that way, I have not a clue. The rating system will add points when an included URL is listed in one of several block lists, and it deducts points for factors such as the sending address's presence in the DNSWL org's whitelist. If Spam Assassin considers the message to be spam, I have it add this word to the subject line, IBSPAM. That's capital letter I, capital letter B in the word spam. I figure that that's never going to legitimately occur in any subject. As email is downloaded, Norton Internet Security examines it too and marks any suspected messages with Norton Anti-Spam in the subject. The next step ignores both Spam Assassin and Norton Anti-Spam. That's because Spam Assassin is actually my second line of defense, and Norton Anti-Spam is actually my third line of defense. So the next step, my first line of defense, is Anti-Spam Sniper for the Bat. It's also available for Outlook, Outlook Express, Windows Mail, and Windows Live Mail. Anti-Spam Sniper has its own internal whitelist and its own internal blacklist specified by the user. Additionally, you can specify rules allowing, for example, any message that contains a valid PGP-encrypted signature or disallowing any message with an empty from line or a date that's in the future. The plugin comes with some of its own rules that you can enable or disable as you see fit, and you can write your own using regular expressions. As with most anti-spam systems, anti-spam sniper rates messages, but then it goes one step further. For messages in the uncertain zone, and by default those are the messages with a rating between 20 and 85, anti-spam sniper uses CloudMark's SpamNet online database for additional information. In the first week, 803 messages were classified as good, 1,465 were classified as bad. Anti-Spam Sniper recorded 12 false positives, 4 false negatives. 
Those are both remarkably low numbers, and they improve over time as the user identifies mistakes to the program. How much it improves is pretty impressive. I'll get to that in a minute. Anti-Spam Sniper uses its own junk folder for spam, and I sort that folder alphabetically by sender because this allows a quick review of the contents for false positives. I also look for messages that don't have either IB Spam or Norton Anti-Spam in the subject because those might be false positives, although usually they're not. My email program has a robust filtering system of its own that kicks in after Anti-Spam Sniper performs its evaluation, and I use that filtering system to sort any message that contains IB Spam or Norton Anti-Spam into trash, but I leave it marked as unread. So, whenever an unread message appears in the trash, I check to see if it's a message that Anti-Spam Sniper has missed. This happens infrequently at most once or twice a day, and when it does happen, I mark the message as junk, and that informs Anti-Spam Sniper so that it will recognize similar messages in the future. I found this process to be considerably faster and easier than having to deal with the server-based PostInny. All messages come to my computer, and they are quickly sorted as good messages, or ham, bad messages, or spam, with 99.4% accuracy. That's remarkable. So the bottom line for Anti-Spam Sniper... This is a program that separates ham from spam, and it makes the process easier than ever before. Five cats. If you use the Bat or Outlook or Outlook Express or Windows Mail or Windows Live Mail and you detest spam, you'll find Anti-Spam Sniper to be a worthwhile addition to your defenses. A free version omits some of the features. The shareware version works without restrictions for 30 days, and when you're ready to buy, it's just $20. For more information, see the Anti-Spam Sniper website. You will, of course, find a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. In short circuits, it's about time. One of my primary complaints about the Kindle, although I like the device itself, has been Amazon's wrong-headed approach to library books. Unless you're willing to break the digital rights management on library books, loading them on your Kindle wasn't possible. Well... Amazon has finally seen the light. Kindle Library Lending will launch later this year and will allow users of any Kindle device to borrow books from more than 11,000 libraries in the United States. These libraries have to use OverDrive to provide the digital content, but most of them do. Kindle Library Lending will work on all generations of Kindle devices and Kindle reading applications. According to Amazon, the Kindle Lending Library will work within the existing OverDrive framework, but neither company so far has been willing to share any technical details. Competing readers allow users to borrow library books, but Amazon, until now, had refused to go along. Digital books will work like their physical counterparts. If the library licenses five copies of a book, only five people can read it simultaneously. One of those people must check the book back in or allow it to expire before a sixth person can check it out. Unlike physical books, those digital copies can't be lost, damaged, or kept accidentally by the borrower. Last month, Western Digital announced plans to purchase Hitachi's hard disk unit, and now Seagate is planning to acquire Samsung's hard disk manufacturing business. The disc business isn't as profitable as it once was, and manufacturers are consolidating even as the demand for standard hard drives continues to increase. 
They know, though, that eventually it's going to decline. Many portable devices use solid-state memory to replicate a disk drive. The solid-state devices aren't as sensitive to vibration and shock, although if you hit them hard enough with a hammer, they will break. Just a few months ago, five relatively large and robust disk manufacturers were competing for worldwide business. With these changes, there will be only three, so regulators in the U.S. and the E.U. will undoubtedly be looking closely at the deal. Samsung plans to provide chips for Seagate products, and Seagate will provide disk assemblies for Samsung products. Seagate will buy Samsung's hard drive business for $1.38 billion in cash and stock. Samsung will acquire just under 10% of Seagate's shares. The combined company will have about 40% of the market. Western Digital Hitachi has about 40% of the market. At least Toshiba with about 20%. At one time, an estimated 200 hard drive manufacturers existed worldwide. Do you remember any of these names? Alps, Connor, Control Data, Data General, Digital Equipment Corporation, Epson, Fujitsu, IBM, iOmega, JVC, Micropolis, Miniscribe, NEC, Quantum, Tandon, Texas Instruments, and Wang. Those are just some of the many manufacturers, and thanks to Wikipedia for the list. Online gambling is illegal, and now the U.S. Department of Justice has started going after some of the big operators. Last week, they filed money laundering charges against three big operators and shut down their domains by seizing the domain names. According to prosecutors, Absolute Poker, Full Tilt Poker, and Poker Stars violated a 2006 federal law that prohibits illegal Internet gambling operators from accepting payments. They did this by fooling banks into processing payments for them, perhaps for billions of dollars. The operators are actually located in places where online gambling is legal, but many of their customers are in the U.S. where the practice is illegal. Instead of billing for poker payments, the gambling operators pretended to sell jewelry or other products. Although some banks were fooled, prosecutors say that others simply cooperated with the gambling operations and accepted bribes to do so. The next step will be more interesting, because the next step is for the government to attempt to extradite the operators to the U.S. for trial. That'll happen only if the governments in countries where online gambling is legal permit the extraditions. And the odds really aren't particularly good that that's going to happen anytime soon. Take a high school junior who's preparing for the ACT and add a portable device such as an iPhone, iPad, or iPod. The result is a new way to prepare for the test. Free application from ACT is the second from the testing company that provides a variety of assessments, research, information, and program management solutions for both schools and businesses. The ACT student app is available through Apple's App Store, and it allows students to answer, practice ACT questions, check their registration status, admission ticket, and scores for the test, and find out about other useful test information. Earlier, ACT released an iPhone search app that helps high school students identify and locate colleges. The ACT mobile website, which has applications for other smartphones, is at mactstudent.org, or you can visit www.act.org for more information. And guess what? There are links to both of those sites from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.